As many of you know, today is what we call here Vision Sunday. And it's that time of the year where we refocus ourselves around the basics of what Grace Fellowship is meant to be. What, are, what is this task that we are to be about? And so um, it's an exciting day. It's about, uh, like I said last week, it's a month and a half late due to a lot of things outside of our control. But better late than never, we're going to get there today. Chuck read the passage that the message will come from. Matthew 28. Verses 16 through 20, commonly known as the Great Commission. I want to send out a message to you today entitled, Marks of the Mission. I think Charles Billingsley sang a song uh, by that title. So I don't take credit for that. I give him credit. But really we give Christ credit. For Christ is the one who set the marks of our mission. How do we measure as a church what we are to do and whether we are doing it well or not? The world's going to offer us, even the church world, a lot of measuring sticks. I believe Christ has offered in His last words on the earth a measuring stick. Something to aim at. Something to shoot for. And Chuck read it this morning. It's very powerful. Very simple message today. Alliterated for your memory's sake. Three marks. Magnification, multiplication, missions. As I look at it, there's one great measuring stick for us as a church and two lesser. All of them vitally important. The one great that stands above all else is magnification, worship. We're going to get there first. Look with me at verse 16. The eleven disciples went to Galilee. They went where Christ had told them to go. When did He tell them? Prior to His death. He told them that He would ascend from from the mountain. And so they went there knowing that He would come before His ascension. He had commanded them to go there. And in the time post His resurrection, He had probably reminded them of His commandment. Go to the mountain in his private dealings with them. And so, outside of Jerusalem, he says, on the mountain, uh, Matthew writes, they saw him. The word there is really they laid their eyes on him. And they worshipped him. This word, worship, in this text, proskuno, which is the Number one usage in the Old Testament for worship. It's by, by far and wide margin the largest used word for the type of worship in the Old Testament. Used again here. Used in the Gospels. Used sparingly outside of the Gospels when Christ was visible. And we'll get to why that's so. But they saw Him. They laid their eyes on Him and they worshipped. They fell down at His feet. And worshipped him. They prostrated themselves on the ground before him. The way you would in front of your king. Worship. Magnification. We will. The goal for Grace Fellowship is this. We will live together in such a way as to promote the worship of Jesus Christ in all facets of our lives. See, you thought I was going to talk about worship style, didn't you? 
instrumentation, types of songs, how old the copyright on a particular piece of music is. That's what the church today is caught up in. At Grace Fellowship, we could care less about those things. We want to live together in such a way that we promote worship in every facet of every member's life. And then ends that, show it to the world so that more might worship Christ. That's our hope. Not to get caught up in the worship wars of the last 30 years about whether you should have a guitar or an organ or whether you should sing hymns or worship songs or whether you should dress up or dress down or whether you should have freedom in worship or you have, should have a liturgical worship. That's not the point when you come to worship Christ. The New Testament is totally devoid of any instruction on practice in a worship service. Nothing there. Doesn't tell Dave how many songs he should sing, what style song it should be, what types of instrumentation, what clothes he should wear. The Old Testament is filled with that kind of command, isn't it? But the New Testament, totally silent on that. Verse 16, I told you, has the word for worship, which is commonly used in the Old Testament, means to fall down in reverence of a majesty. We cannot, I want to argue, worship this way. We cannot any longer worship this way. Because He is not visibly present with us. So we can't do this. That's why the New Testament epistles never use this for the idea of worship. They use the word latruo, which means serve. They don't use the word that means magnify, fall down in front of. Because there's no man to fall down. There's no one to fall down in front of outwardly, is there? We can't do this in our public gathering service any longer. We do it, should do it every day in our hearts. Because though He is not visible among us physically so that we would fall down before Him physically, spiritually He lives in us something that He didn't do in the Old Testament so we fall down inwardly every day before His throne. You see, this type of worship, which was commonplace in the Old Testament for public worship, is swallowed up in an inward idea of worship. You inwardly worship Christ this way, not outwardly. Outwardly, we serve God. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, is a very famous usage of the word serve. Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brothers, to present yourselves a living sacrifice to God, which is your what? Reasonable worship service. It's worship. And so that's why I said in Grace Fellowship's life, we want to live in such a way as to promote the worship of Christ in every aspect of our lives. We want to live together so as to promote each other's daily worship, falling down in front of inwardly and serving, presenting our bodies as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice. That's the hope of Grace Fellowship, to promote that, to increase that, to champion and to encourage. The definition of worship that I kind of put together here, listen to this definition. Worship is the inner spiritual magnification. That's the Old Testament idea, which now has been swallowed up in an inner reality. 
You can't fall down in front of Christ in this worship service because He's physically not here. But you always should be falling down in front of Him in your heart. The inner magnification or exaltation of Christ through the centrality of the Word as Christ is preached, prayed to, praised, and our lives become practice. That's my idea of worship. I think that's the New Testament idea of worship. Worship is the inner spiritual magnification, you see. The world's focused, the church world's focused on outwards, aren't they? We play guitar at our church. Y'all are stodgy. Y'all play the piano and the organ. Y'all are high church. You have an orchestra. Y'all sing songs that were written three centuries ago. We sing songs that were written today. All that stuff is truly garbage in the presence of Christ because He's saying, you people haven't worshipped me in your hearts. Therefore, how will you ever worship me in public? You see, I think the spirit of the age that's so focused on the outward is a sad sign of our inner reality. When people are more interested in the type of music and the type of style in a public worship service, I would believe if you spend enough time with them, their inner worship is pitiful, if at all. They never worship Christ inwardly. It's an outward show, presentation for the pleasing entertainment of the people who've gathered. Church has become entertainment-driven, not worship-driven. Because the definition of worship has changed in our day. Worship is life for the Christian. Not an event. Not a location. Worship is willful. Romans 12.1 tells us that we are, it's a willful act of presenting ourselves to Christ. That's not some let go, let God theory of worship right there. Touchy-feely, emotional-driven. That's a daily dying to the self and laying the self on the altar of God and saying, this is my reasonable, right service to you because you're my king. That's a willful choice. No one can keep you from that kind of worship. No one can stop Grace Fellowship from worshiping that way. It doesn't matter what style song is sung or what instrument is played. It's totally wrong-headed for me to say I can't worship with that kind of music. Is the music biblical? Is it about Christ? then why can we not worship? What is it that prevents us? If the inner reality becomes the overflow of that, if the, if the outer reality becomes the inner, that the overflow of the inner existence of worship in the heart, I'm telling you, music becomes a bi-issue. It's just something we do in praise of our God. Very important, but not controversial. Not controversial. Worship is an eternal event. Worship is an eternal event. That's why I say it's exalted above the other two things I want us to measure our church by. It's going to go on for eternity. Hold your place in Matthew and flip with me to Revelation chapter 5. Don't mistake my passion for anger. I'm not angry. I realize I got a harsh tone for some reason. I'm excited. So don't be afraid. I'll try to smile more. You might call me the smiling preacher. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, This is the scene of heaven. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal. For you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God 
from every tribe and language and people and ethnic group or nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to your God and they shall reign on the earth. This is the picture of the eternal worship of Jesus Christ which we want to partake in inwardly, which will overflow outwardly in our services when Christ is exalted through the preaching and the proclaiming and the praying and the reading and the singing of His Word. Then Christ will be exalted in and among us as people. Worship is enhanced by our frequent gathering to preach and praise. Look, it's not that this event is not important. Don't mishear me. Don't fall into the trap of, oh, I can go to the woods and I can worship just as good as I can in the group of people. That's just not true. You need to discipline yourself to come together as the saints of God to encourage and strengthen one another and to encourage and strengthen yourself. Worship publicly is important, but it is not primary. Primary is that inward worship which will overflow. Worship is practice of holy living. Think about this next time you start to sing on a Sunday morning. Is this the first time you've praised Christ all week? Has my life this week been living testimony to the grace of God? Not self-perfection, but His righteousness applied to me. If the first time you've thought of Christ this week is when you open to sing publicly, it's a failure. It's a failure. We as a church have not done well. Worship is the pursuit of joy in God. As 1 Corinthians tells us, Paul says, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you decide to do on that, do it for the glory of God. Life is worship. That's why I've defined it and said what we want to do is promote Worship of Jesus Christ in all facets of our lives. Because I believe once the private worship of our people is sanctified before God, the public worship will be an honor. And it will be a glory. And it will be a joy. And it will be an encouragement. It will be all it should be. Because the hearts and minds of the believers will be joined together through the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And He'll be present among us in a real way. Luther said this, The worship of God should be free at table, in private rooms, downstairs, upstairs, at home, abroad, in all places, by all peoples, at all times. Whoever tells you anything else is lying as badly as the Pope and the devil himself. Tell us what you really think, Luther, is necessary for worship. Pulls no punches. Piper says... The authenticating inner essence of worship is being satisfied with Christ, prizing Christ, cherishing Christ, treasuring Christ. You can see how this definition of the essence of worship is free from Sunday worship services. It encompasses all of life that flows from the heart. But it is tremendously relevant, Piper says, for understanding what worship services should be about. They are about going hard after God. You see, when you go hard after God privately, and you put a hundred folks that are going hard after God in the same room, and Dave stands up with a worship team, and a musician starts to play, the hearts that are on fire looking for God begin to sing, and it is a great and magnificent sight to our Lord Jesus Christ, who says, I am highly exalted among my people. 
and I sit enthroned on their praise. That's worship, folks. And that's what we're shooting for here. Not to talk about style and preference and all that. Look, we want to take the old and blend it with the new and present all of it to Christ. That's what we want to do. We want to practice a a type of worship that is not cumbersome. That's really not noticeable. It's just beautiful in its essence. And so it draws people to praise. We want this stuff up here to fade away as you focus on Christ. But we don't want it to distract you. So therefore, we're going to seek excellence in all we do as we worship and as we prepare for worship in a a public service. We want understanding. We want understanding when we worship, not confusion. We desire here at Grace Fellowship that God be the center of all worship through His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Word of God, which has been proclaimed. That's what we want. Some small things. We want to promote times of worship as catalysts for our family and private worship. When we tell you, come be with us on Sunday morning, what we're saying is come be filled with that rejuvenating, exciting, enthusiastic, vibrant life of the believers so that all week you can worship with your family and worship in your work and worship in your, in your, in your hobby and worship at everything. This becomes a catalyst, not the only type of worship. It promotes worship. So, I say all of that to say we will promote family worship. We will promote all of life as worship. We will promote our times of worship simply as catalyst, which will drive your family in private worship. That's magnification. Let's move to multiplication. Multiplication is found in verse uh, 19. We see it there. Now, don't misunderstand. When I say one is exalted above the others, it doesn't mean the other two aren't relevant. It means these two will cease to exist at some point because Christ will come and then all that will be left is worship. Okay? It's not that these aren't important. These are tremendously important. They're just not eternal and worship is. Okay? So, multiplication. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Your translation says... Make disciples. A literal rendering would be, go therefore and disciple all nations. I like that. Go therefore and disciple all nations is what Jesus told his disciples to do. The definition of discipleship, which I've written down, the process whereby a lost man is converted to Christ and then taught to treasure Christ in all of his life. By teaching him the principles which Jesus has given us in his word. That's discipleship. Okay? That's the definition Jesus put on it and Paul put on it. So it's not evangelize or disciple. They're the same thing. You look at me like they're not. They're not in the modern church, are they? Well, you know, I don't get into that whole discipleship thing. You know, I know that's important, but boy, I just really like to tell people about Jesus. That's what I like to do. That guy didn't exist in the New Testament. Didn't exist. And also, well, you know, I just like to go deep with people. That's what I like to do. I like to pick them up when somebody else has won them to Christ. I like to carry them on in their faith. That guy didn't exist in the New Testament. What exists in the New Testament were men and women who said, 
The world needs Christ. God will save His elect. He will use my words because they're His words to save the elect. And when He does, I'll mature them through His word, all things He's taught me. The commission here is not to go. That's assumed you're going to go. Jesus doesn't command going. He commands discipling. And discipling includes seeing people converted and raised to maturity. The church has failed, haven't we? I'm talking about the evangelical church in the United States. Because we've made this false divide. People start out in these uh, evangelistic type churches where people just, it's just the same simple milk of the word over and over and over again. They get saved there and then they get kind of tired of that. So they promote up to big boy church at some point and start going where the real meat of the word's taught. That's a contradiction. There's a problem in either of those churches. When the meat of the word's never put out on the table for the people to eat, there's a problem there. It's a lack of spirituality there. There's a lack of Christ there. And when the meat's put out there and there's never any winsome presentation of Christ as treasure and as cherishable, there's a problem, isn't there? There's a lack of Christ in that place. Because what Jesus did is went about winsomely, magnetically drawing people through His personality and His words. And then when they were converted... He discipled them. Discipled them. So discipleship is not a multiplication. Don't get me wrong. Multiplication is not a choice between discipleship or evangelism. It's both combined. In my personal life, when I disciple, I share my faith. When I disciple, I share my faith. You see me not sharing my faith very often, I'm probably not discipling anybody. I've become an, a, not an outlet, but I've become a, a dead end. And there's sin in my life. And you need to rebuke me of it. And say, hey man, you're not sharing your faith. Are you discipling by? You're not discipling by? That's what you're called to do. What's wrong? It's not a choice. Jesus discipled 120 people. And then that became 12. His life was poured out into a few men who were faithful. And these faithful men poured their lives into other faithful men who would continue the process known as discipleship, which Paul wrote down and said in 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, to Timothy, listen to this plea. You then, my child, old man Paul, talking to young man Timothy, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Sounds like Paul went to the school of Jesus on how to run a ministry. Preach the gospel. Teach all things in the presence of many so that some might believe and be raised up to maturity in Christ so they might then preach the gospel in front of many. Some might be saved and they might raise them up into the maturity of Christ. And we have 2,000 years worth of church history wrapped up in that philosophy. It's been a good philosophy. It spread the word from Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the earth. It has not failed. There's no reason to abandon. Evangelism is a natural outflow of a life of discipleship. Discipleship is intentional. Discipleship is life on life. In its greatest form, it's life on life. 
It's what happens in your home when you're raising your children. You're discipling them. You're discipling them. Discipleship is sacrificial. No one ever was a discipler of men who wasn't willing to lay down his life, count the cost, and be willing to suffer. Nobody ever was a great reproductive machine in Christ without sacrifice. Jesus promised that to us. Discipleship is costly. It's going to cost you money. It's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you energy. It's going to cost you time with your family. It's going to cost you time at your work. It's going to cost you great. And so I'll say to you as a caution, count the cost. Don't begin building a barn and then quit. Don't gather up for war and then realize you don't have enough to do it. Become convinced first of this as the commission and then go forth. And if you do that, the cost will be minimal to you. Discipleship is effective. Billy Graham spoke on Dawson Trotman's death. He said this, When asked if you could go back and be anyone in time besides Jesus Christ or one of the apostles, who would you be? Without blinking an eye, Billy Graham said, Dawson Trotman. To which a follow-up question was required because the guy didn't know who he was. Who is he? Here's this great man of the faith that we believe has led hundreds of thousands of people. And he says, I wouldn't be myself if I could go back. I'd be Dawson Trotman. He and Dawson, about the same age, poured their lives out for Christ in two separate ways. Billy Graham on the circuit around the world preaching the gospel and reaching great acclaim for his work. Dawson Trotman in the trenches discipling a few so that the message of the cross might go to all nations. I've told you a little bit about his story. I encourage you to read Doss, his biography. Do you realize that this man was a Sunday school teacher of fourth and fifth grade boys who prayed every morning that God would take men out of that Sunday school class and put them on every continent around the world? And at his funeral, every continent was represented by men who stood up and said, Dawson Trotman discipled the man who discipled me, and that's why I'm here. Every nation and every tongue will be gathered around the throne through the process of multiplication as we begin to teach people how to worship Christ in the true essence of inner worship. That's what Grace Fellowship is about, not programs. That's not our mission. Not entertaining worship services. Inner worship, which overflows into outward multiplication. That's our desire. We will promote discipleship through living a life of discipleship before you as your leaders. We want you to, as Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That doesn't mean we're perfect, but it does mean that we've counted the cost and we've said this is our life. And we're calling you to do the same. And it's going to cost you, but we're begging you to come with us. We'll continue to gather in small groups, Bible studies, home groups, praying that they will be catalysts for life-on-life discipleship. We want to encourage this year and every year prayer for increased discipleship among us. We continue to believe that discipleship is practiced best in the following ways. Corporate worship, small group, family worship, one-on-one. None of them should be left out. All of them are important, and we want to promote them through God's great call to the church. Finally, missions. That's the third mark which we can gauge our church by is missions. Now, I'm about to get, uh, get uh, excited. 
Anybody who knows me knows this is my heart. You spend any time with me. I'm jealous of those who go overseas. I don't feel God has called me there yet, but I pray God will. I told Amy, I ain't in the bed. Honey, just this week I said, Honey, when our kids are raised and out of the house, don't you think God will release us from our work in the United States and let us go overseas? She said, Maybe. Maybe before then, but hopefully by then. He'll see fit to put me somewhere for his name's sake. Piper says this, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. Does the church not need to hear that? In a world full of people saying, we've got to go reach those poor lost people who aren't going to come to know Jesus. We need a few men who will say, we need to go take the great name of our great and powerful God to those poor people who've never heard the name of Christ. Because God deserves that. Because He's most worthy of our praise and worship. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It's a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Missions is twofold. Paul and Timothy. I want to I speak about Timothy quickly because obviously that's the local mission here. Okay? That's the work we do among one another. Timothy was in Ephesus doing this work of the local church. And it is a great work that you need to be involved in at every level of your life Give yourself to it because it is worthy of your life. It is worthy of your life. Because when you give yourself to the church, the bride of Christ, you're giving yourself to the husband of heaven, Jesus Christ. So the work of Timothy is great. All right? But I want to spend some time on the work of Paul. Paul said in Romans 15, verses 17 through 21, the following words. In Christ Jesus, they have reason to be proud. Uh, they have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Now listen to this, and I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of Him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. That was Paul's mission. And so I believe the church, Grace Fellowship, is in desperate need of some Pauls who will say, What you guys are doing here is necessary and good, but my call on my life is to go where God has not been named, where Christ has not been preached. We need it here. If it doesn't happen here, then in some ways we've failed. If all we ever are is gatherers and not senders, we've failed as a church. We need more Pauls. 
pioneer missionaries. I'm going to show you some graphs in just a minute, not quite yet, that are going to show this. 80% of the resources of the modern church are mobilized and used among white Western churches. 80%. And this, against the backdrop of this commission, go and make disciples of all the nations. So I ask, are we succeeding or failing there? As a church, all ethnic groups is really the interpretation. Before we can say the commission is fulfilled, we must be broken for all ethnic groups, all of them, not political boundaries, but groups of people. Ethnos is the word in the Greek, which means culture, language, people groups, not national political alliances. The sinful practice of ethnic hatred which is what I'm calling it now, ethnic hatred. Because I've read a lot lately about some men I really trust who've encouraged me to drop the term racism because racism implies that we're of different races where the Bible never implies that. The Bible says we are the human race divided by ethnicity only. In other words, the blood that courses in my veins is the same blood that courses in the veins of those who live around the world. We are one race, human race. We need to call it ethnic hatred. That's what it is. My group's better than your group is what it is. Let me show you the connection here of Matthew 28 to the old promise to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12 Verses 1 through 3 says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Great Commission was spoken to Abraham before the nation of Israel was founded. I want to take it back one more step. When God created him, Adam and Eve, he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Subdue it and have dominion over it. And what I'm telling you is the Great Commission is a repeating of that command. Subdue the earth. Have dominion over it in the gospel. That is the mission of Grace Fellowship, to subdue the earth as part of the worldwide body of Christ. Genesis 12 defines it a little better. This nation, Israel, will bless all nations. He gained its name from his father, Jacob. In Genesis 35, listen to verses 10 through 12. And God said to him, Jacob, your name is Jacob. No longer shall I call your name Jacob, but Israel is your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. That's what he told Adam and Eve, isn't it? Now he's telling Jacob the same thing. And I'm telling you in Matthew 28, he's saying the same thing to us. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all things I have taught you. And I'm with you to the end of the age as you do this, as you multiply and subdue the earth. Just like I told Jacob, just like I told Abraham, just like I told Adam, it's the same word from God. 
He's never changed. Look at what he says. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. Wait a minute. The nation of Israel came from Jacob. No. A company of nations will come from Jacob's seed. Something a lot bigger at work here than genetics and the union of a man and a woman. This is the faith family being spoken of in Genesis 35. All the nations are included. A company of nations. So it's a military term. And kings shall come from your loins. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring, not springs. The promise of land that we so covet sometimes in our theology was not made to Israel's offsprings. The promise of that land was made to the offspring. Singular. You say, what's the big deal? The promise was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The land promise was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And I want to show you that. The promise to Abraham about the land is not simply in what is commonly known as Israel. It was expanded. It was an expanded view of the land, which we're called to look at. In Romans chapter 4, verse 13, the New Testament tells us, For the promised, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come. Wait a minute, what did it say? Heir of the world? In Genesis 12, he said, I'm going to show you a land. In Genesis 15, he repeated, he said, everything your eye sees, I'm going to give to you. In Genesis 22, he repeats that again. In Genesis 35, he starts to speak of a company of nations. And in Romans chapter 4, the Bible tells us Abraham wasn't looking at a sandbox in the Middle East. Abraham was looking at the whole world as his through the promise of what? His offspring, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that Abraham would inherit the land. Jesus is the fulfillment. We need to start thinking that way, and it will change our outlook on missions. Instead of spending millions and millions and millions of dollars to fight over a small strip of land in the Middle East, we'll begin to employ millions and millions and millions of dollars to have dominion over the whole earth through the gospel. Instead of propping up one dictator to take down another, we'll get busy about the church doing what the church is called to do, which is to bring the gospel to all nations, all ethnic groups, and then the end will come. We'll mobilize the church not to war physically, but to war spiritually, and to see the promise of Abraham fulfilled. The promise of offspring was not simply Isaac and Jacob when it was given to Abraham, or the twelve tribes, but Galatians chapter 3 Paul says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. 
So then those who are by, of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. That little nursery rhyme song we sing, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them and so are you, so let's just praise the Lord. That's a true statement according to Paul in Galatians. If you're in faith, you're a child of Abraham. You have come through the offspring promised Abraham, Jesus Christ, to inherit the entire earth. So why are we all grouped up on one little island? Why are we cramped up here in the United States and Europe? Why not spread out a little? It's all ours by the power of the gospel. All of it. Every grain of it is ours. I don't have time, but boy, do I wish I could expand this to the words of Jesus in John 8:56, when he said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And when he saw it, he was glad. Abraham saw Christ's day and he was glad. Oh, how I wish I had time to tell you all about the deep truths of Galatians 3, verse 8, where he says that we are the offspring of Abraham. The bottom line is the gospel promise has never changed. God is blessing all ethnic groups through Christ. We are Abraham's children. And so, what do we do practically at Grace Fellowship? I want us to strive to unify the ethnic groups through the gospel of Christ which exists in our community. Because we can preach unity through the gospel to the world, but until we do it here, they won't listen. And the first step there is repentance. Repentance of our ignorance and of our short-sightedness that we despise those of a different ethnic group. We want to unify them through my greatest vision of this church at McClellan is that that increased capacity will not be filled with people who look and talk like us, but people who look and talk and think totally different than us. Socioeconomics, race, or ethnic groupings will be dismissed in the name of Christ and everyone will join under the name of Christ, for the gospel of Christ, for the mission of Christ, which is to reach every ethnic group in the world. That's what I want. Black, white, Hispanic, Asian if there's people in Antarctica, I want them. And I don't mean that frivolously because I think that is the picture that will preach to the world the power of Jesus Christ. We will support by prayer, fasting, finances, and short-term missions those pioneer missions around the world. Planning a short-term mission trip in August to Mexico to unreached people. I'm excited about it. We can pray. We can fast. We can send our resources. We will take up the task of social justice in the areas of ethnic hatred and abortion because these two alone stand unmoved in our nation to prevent the spread of the gospel to all peoples who call themselves Americans. We'll promote the cause. We have an account set aside right now with some 50 some odd thousand dollars to help families Adopt children from this nation and around the world. And we're ready to mobilize that and ask you to give to that cause so that we might see children saved from not only their earthly hell, but an eternal hell. We believe in the cause of adoption. My family believes in the cause of adoption. We want you to believe in the cause of adoption. We not only want to bring them here and train them up to stay here, we want to send them back. We want to send them back as missionaries to their people. We will send missionaries to reach those who have never heard. We do that right now through Two Every Tribe missions. 
Robert's headed to a group of people who've never heard he and Megan in Nepal. Josh and Jamie are with us today, and I hope one day uh, after their training is complete, they're headed somewhere where nobody's heard. That's what I hope. And I'm praying that, and that not only them but many more will go. We will find our satisfaction in God so that we are not satisfied until his name is exalted among all people of the world. The fact is, folks, I want to show you some things here as we close that will hopefully revolutionize your thought. Cody, hit that first slide. The majority religions around the world are depicted in color code. Look at the blue. Look at Islam in the 1040 window, unchecked. Look at non-religious activity now exists in China and Mongolia, unchecked. Hindus reach unchecked, unchecked in India. Buddhist in the south of China, Vietnam, different countries there, and then also over in Japan. These are the groups as they group up primarily. Okay, let's go to the next slide. These are the unreached people groups of the world. Those red dots, each one, is an unreached people group. Do you see a pattern from here to here? Remember when I said we need to change the way we think of the land promise? Who are those people? Who are they by religion? They're children of Ishmael. They're Muslims. They're descendants of Esau. Why have we not gone to them? I believe because of their twisted view of the land promise. We've said they're getting what they deserve because they cursed Israel. Shame on us, church, when Muslims die every day to stoke the fire of hell and we sit piously saying they're getting what they deserve because they're not for Israel. Next slide. These are the unevangelized populations in millions. Did you see those numbers? Go back. Did you see those numbers? Will it not stay there? You can go to the pie chart if that's what it wants to do. That's amazing to me. Go to that pie chart. These are the unreached people groups of the world. Unreached, by definition, Operation World is that they've never heard a significant call to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've never heard his name. 2,700 people groups that are Hindu. 4,100 Muslim groups. And then some tribal and Buddhist and others. But look at this. Double in the Muslim world. Why? Because we have a wrong view of what God promised Abraham. We have a wrong view of it. We've missed it. And we're not preaching the gospel to these people. You say, well, it's closed cultures. That's, that's the deal. No. No, it's not because there's closed cultures. Because we mobilize publicly to wage war on people in the Middle East, and we're not worried about their closed cultures. But we don't mobilize as a church because we don't care, is what it seems to say. Let's flip the screen there. This is the world population. This is what we spend our money on. Amazing. We call foreign missions reaching evangelized people. 
We spend 2.5% of our mission fund as a church on unreached people. Keep going. This is the missionary presence. Over 100 to every million residents. Look at the groups that have over 100. Look where they're not in the 1040 window. How many missionaries? Less than 20. Less than 20 for every million Muslim in the 1040 window. The opportunity for a Muslim to accidentally bump into a Christian on the street would be like you as an ant or going to an anthill and finding one particular grain of sand colored black. It won't happen because it's so few. Keep going. This is the population under 15. 40 to 50 plus percent of their population under 15. The young people of our world sit in these unevangelized nations right now. Keep going. These are the verses I want you to think of. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. I am with you to the end of the age. Matthew 24, Jesus says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you say, well, it's a closed people group so we can't get in. Jesus says they're going to persecute you if you go. They're going to kill you if you go. But if you go, my name will be preached. People will come to my name and the kingdom will be closer to coming. So go is what Jesus says. Go. And so what I'm saying to you, Grace Fellowship, is in everything we do, we want to mobilize ourselves to the unreached people of the world. Two quick notes. You won't reach the unreached until you reach the reached. If you won't share the gospel across the street, you won't share the gospel in a Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. I promise you. We've got to bring passion back into our lives of Christ. How do we do that? Through worship. Through worship. Through learning all things He has taught us. I want to show you a short video um, that will hopefully inspire because these are quotes from missionaries. And I want to close our service after this. Look at these quotes from great men of old that have gone out into the call of missions. Don't fail me now. Oh, no. There we go.
that's what I hope for you. Is that you would say what Isaiah said so many years ago. Here am I. Send me. That's Grace Fellowship in a nutshell. Magnify. Multiply. Mobilize the missions. The church God has granted us in his grace. So I'm asking to join me. And joining me means putting your shoulder to the plow with me. That's what I'm asking you to do is join me as we go out to this world. In the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Some of you have felt the tug at your heart for missions today. Foster that by reading his word and reading the great biographies of missionaries. And never say never. I don't care how old you are, how infirmed you feel. Never say never. Always say, this year is the year I'm going. This year is the year I'm going. I said in the Sunday school hour, if this church ceases to exist because everybody here is on the mission field in those unreached groups, we've succeeded. If it continues to exist and we send nobody to that lost world, no matter how big we get, we fail. We fail. We don't have to. In him we succeed. He is triumphant and victorious. Let's follow our leader to the unreached of this world. Let's pray. Father, what a great challenge from your word. Help us to set aside prejudice in our mind, theologically, ethnically. Help us to set aside even the hatred that we have for the 1040 window because that's what it is, God. We have a real hatred and a real fear of them. They are truly creations just like us and they deserve to hear the truth of your gospel like we did. And so God, send us And may we die there. And may we get sick there. May we fall into persecution there. For your name's sake. That your gospel would break out in these places. Lord, Jothi's headed back to India to be with her family. Spend two months there. God, give her audience with lost Hindus that she might share her faith vibrantly with them and preach the gospel. God, I pray for Robert and Megan as they prepare to go to Nepal. Oh God, help us as a church to help them. If we can't go, they can. So help us to help them in prayer and in finances. I pray for Josh and Jamie that you continue to birth in them what you have for them to do in the days to come. I thank you for their witness and their willingness to go. And I pray, God, you would mobilize them and train them and mobilize them into the lost world. God, I pray for our mission in Albania. Thank you for Rob and for Mark and for all the men that are working so hard there for your glory and your kingdom. Oh, God, I pray for Dave Sitton and for Rod Connor. I don't know where they are, but today they're probably in danger. 
God, I pray not that they be taken from danger, but that they take your word in danger to the lost people on the island so many might be saved. Be with the team that left just yesterday to go to Mexico. God, I pray they would have great fruit for their labor. And help us to go, Lord. Help us to go. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being with us.